You are listening to the Nirvana podcast, episode 16, the In Euro Circus. Bonjour et bienvenue à la uh, Nirvana podcast, podcast du Nirvana. Uh, je m'appelle Sitze. Are we doing French today? <laughs> Mais oui, bien sûr. <laughs> je m'appelle Yedisha et je suis en Bordeaux. Oui. Which is uh, why we're uh, trying to do this in French, I think. <laughs> uh, absolutely, and also because we're a very uh, international podcast. Uh, yes, we definitely are. Mm-hmm. And I know that we uh, have some uh, new uh, listeners uh, here in Bordeaux. So, uh, welcome. Really? Did, did, you, did you promote us? Uh, yeah, obviously. Very cool. Well, maybe yeah. you just found out and you were uh, chased down the street by fans or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't yet. But there are a lot of people here wearing Nirvana shirts. I don't know why. Maybe there are a lot of uh, Nirvana fans uh, in the uh, in France or in Bordeaux especially. If there are, let me know. I like to think that everybody I meet wearing a shirt is a uh, listener of the show. So uh, I, I feel uh, loved whenever I see somebody with a shirt. Yeah, yeah. You, you're not um, suspicious. Like, hmm, you probably don't know uh, very much about the band. You're just following the fashion. <laughs> Depends on their age, I guess. But <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I assume the best in people. I assume that that if they wear the shirt, they know about the band. If not, then they should listen to us, right? Yeah, absolutely. And for the people who are listening to us and are thinking, what are they talking about? Um, you are living in uh, Bordeaux, France, uh, uh, for a year. Yep. So. Um, that's that's what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah. so we're back to uh, doing this uh, slightly uh, remotely uh, yeah. recording, but I'll be uh, back in the Netherlands a couple of times. So uh, we'll probably uh, do some live sessions uh, again soon as well. Hopefully, yeah, it would be nice. But of course, I hope that the way we we record this is. Um, just as good as when we're in the same room together uh, do, doing that. I mean, we've uh, we've struggled a bit with that in the past, and I think, uh, well, it should be good enough now. Yeah, and uh, if if not, let us know, and uh, then uh, we'll open a Patreon, and you can uh, donate some money for me to fly back to <laughs> Amsterdam often. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to say so we can buy some better equipment, but you just want to get a free <laughs> no. plane ticket. No, I'm just thinking about myself now. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so uh, the last two episodes we did were about um, In Euro, the final studio album uh, Nirvana made. So that means that um, we are in 1993 in the yep. history of the band because they recorded that album in two weeks in February uh, of that year. I think we should um, pick up the story after they uh, left the studio and they did very few shows but still um it wasn't a boring time a, l- a lot of stuff was uh, was going on yeah i think um dave spent that quiet time for the band uh doing some side projects yeah he uh, joined his old bandmates from uh, uh, scream to do some uh, to do some shows and he joined the the backbeat band which was a um a, like an all-stars 90s rock band doing um, covers of old Beatles songs 
for the soundtrack of the uh, movie called Backbeat, mm-hmm. which is about the, the early years of, uh, of the, the Beatles. Yep. Um, did you ever check out the Backbeat album? No, I, I must say I did see the movie, but that's like a long time ago. <laughs> so I can't really, really remember it. Uh, but I never actually checked out the, the album itself. I, I did, but quite recently. Um, it didn't come out, by the way, until 1994, but I believe the band starting to form and rehearse around uh, around this period. Mm-hmm. So um, let's listen to some uh, rock and roll music. Nice. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll. So I don't think there's lots uh, to, to say about that, except that it's fun to hear uh, Dave Grohl drumming on uh, on old rock and roll classics like uh, like this one. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think it's uh, um, what I what I also find interesting in him doing like projects like this, and also getting back with his own uh, previous band and stuff like that. He was basically always trying out things in music. Um, doing stuff here and there, writing his own songs, obviously. Um, and and during the same time, um, you could see Chris doing uh, other stuff. <laughs> um, a bit of music as well, but um, during this period, he was, for instance, very heavily involved in uh, the issues in former Yugoslavia, uh, where uh, he's from and where there was a... Uh, uh, civil war going on um so he went there he he wrote about it did interviews he organized um like uh uh, benefit concerts and stuff like that and it's it's interesting to see how that sort of defines their careers after that as well so it's sort of you see the first contours of of dave really being into music and later on not only starting foo fighters but also keeping in touch with so many other artists and, and doing a lot for, well, <laughs> music in general. Um, and Chris going more into the, the social political side of things. So so it's I, I find it really interesting to, to see that happening here already. Yeah, that's totally right. Um, and meanwhile, um, um, Kurt was, um, yeah, well, busy with his own um, issues, I guess. Um, a famous incident occurred in uh, June of that year when uh, the police was called to go to the uh, Cobain house um, because there was a uh, disturbance. And there's quite a lot of different versions of this story, I think. What comes back uh, in in all of them is that the police was called in and um, confiscated um, Kurt and um, a couple of his guns. Apparently, that's what we know for sure. But exactly what happened, we don't know. I think later Kurt and Courtney said that they were just making loud music and jamming. I don't think that's very <laughs> no, believable. Probably not. Um, there's obviously stories about them having a fight, um, but the whole combination of like having a domestic dispute, but then also taking a lot of guns, um, that's also something that has always um, surprised me a bit. It's it's not something that has come up 
earlier in, in Kurt's story. Um, and also, if he had a lot of guns at home um, and the police took them, that would, we would assume that they were not his legal uh, <laughs> possession. Kurt having a lot of guns in the house, or at least some guns in the house, I think it didn't fit with a lot of uh, with the image that a lot of people had of him. I mean, he's the one singing about uh, in Bloom uh, about um, some other person who likes to shoot his gun and not in a positive way. Um, he told the story about uh, how he sold his stepfather's yeah. guns to buy his first guitar, and and so he used guns as like an image of something mm -hmm. that he was against. At the same time, uh, he liked to go out with his friend Dylan Carl Carlson to uh, shoot yep. some stuff out in the woods, you know, like target practice. And, well, he he liked to own a few guns to feel safe, I suppose. Um, he always said that it was for his own uh, protection. Um, there were uh, some accounts that uh, Kurt and Courtney were getting more and more paranoid. Yep because they were harassed by the press, but maybe also about with some strange people lurking around their house, or at least that's what they yeah. were afraid of. And, well, the real reason for the um, disturbance that the police was called in for in the first place never really got clear. I suppose Kurt and Courtney got in a fight. And later, um, yeah, I've, I've read that Kurt convinced the police to take him instead of Courtney. I don't know if that's true, uh, um, some people say that Courtney told the police that Kurt had locked himself in a room and was uh, threatening to kill himself. Other people say, well, he locked himself in a room just to get away from <laughs> Courtney. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it, it doesn't paint a very pretty picture, not uh, quiet family life with his wife no, and child, no, that's for sure. No, not. And I think that, I mean, to, to put that all in context, obviously, um, the whole um, drug problem that Kurt had was also strenuous on their relationship. So you can imagine that um, <laughs> it couldn't have been a happy family always. Um, I mean, he, he used a lot of drugs and felt it wasn't a problem because he he could tour, he could, he could do... Uh, shows he could take care of his child, um, which is obviously something that that any junkie will <laughs> say. Like I function, but apparently he did he did function. I mean, <laughs> we've seen it that he functioned to, to an extent. Obviously, he could function in a dysfunctional family <laughs> and a yeah, dysfunctional but let, band. Let, let's say that um, there are plenty of uh, drug abusing people in. Um, the music industry who have played far worse gigs <laughs> than Kurt did. Um, <laughs> and, and also because apparently Courtney was trying to, to stay off the drugs. Um, I can imagine that whether she succeeded or not, that's also something that doesn't help if you both have other ideas about how your life and your, uh, substance abuse uh, should be so yeah i can uh, i can imagine uh, that something like that could could definitely happen uh, unfortunately and I'm, I'm convinced that kurt at least at some moments he felt terrible about being this way and acting this sure. way and not being able to stay off drugs and be like a, like um, the father and the person yeah. that he wanted to be but uh, yeah that's the problem with addictions um 
Luckily, there was also um, some news with uh, on the musical level from the music side um, because on uh, J- July 1st, there was the release of a very special collaboration of two um, uh, people, um, Kurt and um, writer William S. Yes. Burroughs. They um, released like a, a, a single on which um, Burroughs um, is reading one of his st- uh, short stories and Kurt is... Uh, playing uh, the guitar with lots of, uh, of, uh, of feedback. I think Kurt had recorded his his part um, quite some time before it got released. I think Kurt just you know make, made a guitar track, yep. send it over, and then um, the two um, were combined. Yeah. Uh, they did meet, but that was months later. And also, Kurt wanted to have uh, uh, Burroughs uh, in the video for uh, uh, Heartshape yep. Box. The old man yep. on the cross. Uh, he even offered uh, Burroughs to do it like uh, anonymous, wearing a, a hood or a mask or something like that. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if he asked him and he declined or maybe didn't uh, yeah, dare to no ask him. I have no idea if he asked. Not really <laughs> sure what the story is there. But uh, like, apparently, um, like Kurt was a really big fan of Burroughs, just like a lot of people, um, not just of his work, but also... Well, the kind of person that he he was, or at least that he conveyed to be through his work, uh, because Burroughs wrote a lot about um, drug abuse, about um, journalism, about traveling. He wrote all kinds of, of weird science fiction stuff, uh, but a lot of it was rooted in a sort of drugs reality. It's the sort of work that, when you read it, um, shines a positive light, I'd say, on drug abuse. It's like that that beautiful myth of being a junkie where, uh, during that time was, was definitely something that was uh, cultivated. And um, I read somewhere that that was something that Kurt was actually sort of disappointed in later, that <laughs> apparently the beautiful junkies that were there in Burroughs, his books and like the the junkie lifestyle uh, wasn't as glamorous <laughs> as in uh, Burroughs's books and also obviously when they met the guy was uh, already older and and although their their meetup was nice and friendly it wasn't like the the like the, the perfect match that I think Kurt might have hoped it to be so yeah yeah maybe his uh, expectations were a little bit too high what I've read from it is that afterwards, uh, Burroughs said uh, about Kurt, um, there's something wrong with that kid. He frowns for no reason. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I, I like the poetics of that. <laughs> Let's listen to uh, the two of them uh, at work. Fight tuberculosis, folks. Christmas Eve, an old junkie selling Christmas seals on North Park Street. The priest, they called him. Fight tuberculosis, folks. Yeah, um, if you want to know how the story ends, just uh, (laughs) go look it up online. It's about nine minutes long and uh, it goes on uh, like this. Yeah. Later that month, uh, Nirvana uh, did get back on stage together. I think in between they did maybe like two, two gigs, like fundraisers. But on uh, July 23rd, they uh, played at uh, the Roseland uh, Ballroom for the New Music uh, Seminar. Uh, 
And I think that's an important and notable gig for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, it almost didn't happen mm-hmm. because they were already uh, building up and uh, putting the gear on the stage and getting everything ready when um, a message came in that um, Kurt had died from an overdoses and he did OD that day. Yeah. But apparently he was revived or he woke up or whatever, but um, he lived and not only did he live, um, he showed up and played the gig. Yeah. Which is pretty remarkable, I think, and <laughs> pretty messed up as well. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And what's even more remarkable is that this would sort of happen <laughs> several times <laughs> afterwards as well. It's hard to understand how his body worked during that period to be able to overdose and then just get up and play a great gig um, is is beyond any expectations i'd say so yeah yeah i know it it it, it did happen um a couple of other times but this one has been confirmed yeah uh, even by members of the crew who said yeah we actually got the call uh, you can stop getting ready for the show because well this is what happened and then later uh they got the, the green light say oh no <laughs> everything's fine now yeah. just gonna go and, and, and play the gig and um it was a, a pretty uh, important performance because like I said it was uh, something called uh, uh, the new music seminar so it was um, a showcase for yep. their new songs and also their new live lineup or at least uh, um, to some extent uh, they did bring uh, Laurie Goldstein uh, Goldstone uh, on cello yep. uh, with them on, on stage who would also join uh, the extended uh, uh, Euro tour that would follow later that year and they had a, a second a guitar player on stage. Yeah. It was uh, Big John Duncan. <laughs> exactly. I believe he was their uh, guitar technician, right? Yeah, it was. And uh, they did one rehearsal for this show and he'd already stepped in during that rehearsal. So, yeah, made sense to take him uh, with them. These things do happen uh, more often, like having technicians step in also with recording sessions to just... Uh, do some stuff in between or or help out for a live gig when, I don't know, one one band member leaves and they don't have a new one yet. Um, I can imagine in this case that because of all of the overdubs they did on the album that when they started rehearsing, they sort of realized pretty soon that in order to to feel that that whole of the overdubs for some songs um they might need something extra and then took in their technician and and sort of (laughs) decided to think about what would happen after that yeah and he must have thought that wow if it goes really well and they like it maybe i can do this every night and (laughs) Anyone in his position would definitely be thinking that. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah. But I, I've never heard him say that he was really disappointed when uh, eventually uh, this turned out to be a, a one-time thing. But uh, I don't know. Um, he did get up on a stage with them to play four songs, uh, Drain You, Tourette, uh, Aneurysm, and Very Ape. Let's uh, check out how that sounded uh, with Very Ape because that was from their new album and you can very clearly hear that there's um, two two guitars uh, at work. 
Chris uh, during the performance uh, joked that um, uh, John uh, got the chance to play with them because he uh, won a contest by uh, writing a, an essay about uh, how grunge changed his life. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Pretty funny. I like that. Apparently, they made made a good good impression. Uh, I think they managed to keep um, quiet what happened before the gig. Mm-hmm. So it was just like um, showcasing to the world that they were still going as a band and um, giving like a preview of their new album and also uh, yeah of their upcoming tour. And of course, the whole world was waiting for that new album. Yes. And um, they didn't have to wait that long anymore because um, on August 30th, um, the Heart Shaped Box single uh, was released. Yep. With uh, Milk It as a B-side, which I think was a pretty clever choice because it really made clear that the new album was going to sound different than the previous one. And uh, another B-side of the single was uh, Marigold. The only Nirvana song uh, not sung by Kurt, but no. it was a Dave song. I don't even think that Kurt plays on it. I, I think they uh, recorded it with just uh, Chris and Dave. Dave had already uh, released that song on his uh, uh, solo tape called A Pocket Watch, mm-hmm. which he released under the name Late. Yeah. Um, and it was only released uh, as a cassette. And well... By calling it late, um, it didn't get much uh, attention. <laughs> no. <laughs> and also, uh, even in 1993, uh, cassettes weren't really uh, a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, not anymore. It was like an <laughs> under-the-radar uh, release, but it, it does show that, like you said, uh, Dave was uh, writing his own music and um, developing um, himself yeah, in that way. Definitely. And I, I also find it really interesting that um, Kurt allowed a song on the B-side that wasn't written by him and that he had no, no taken no part in um, because you could hear him so often talk about how he was like Nirvana and, and how he would want to work with other musicians and maybe like, he, I mean, he, he broke up the band almost a couple of times. And uh, so, so the whole... The whole control freak thing um, wasn't there for this song, uh, which I find remarkable. So maybe he was yeah. either he did want to give Dave like his own space, or he just couldn't be bothered. Basically, <laughs> I don't think that was the case. I mean, he was always very serious about his art and his music, and I mean, this was the leading single exactly. of their uh, uh, new album. Um, I suppose he just wanted to be nice to Dave or maybe just maybe he liked the song or maybe he thought that would you know um, take a bit of the pressure and attention off of his shoulders and maybe put Dave a bit more in the spotlights I don't I don't really know I mean it it wasn't like they didn't have any other b-sides they had some leftovers from the utero sessions that would serve as a a b-side or as a um, song on a, a compilation album here and there, so they had they had enough material, but they chose to to put Marigold on there, and it more or less foreshadows Dave um, Dave's uh, future as a songwriter and a singer, and uh, yeah, and it's a nice song yeah. as, uh, as well. <laughs> it it kind of feels like we should play it, yeah, <laughs> but I also kind of want to save it because um, there are some very um, 
interesting uh, different versions of it yep. yeah, out there. So I kind of have an uh, episode in mind to uh, put some of the non-album tracks uh, a bit more uh, into the spotlight and yeah. so let's, dive a bit deeper into them. Yeah, let's, let, let's save it for them. And, and if you're listening to this and you can't recall Marigold and you really, really want to know, then just... Um, after the episode, just go look it up and listen to it already and then uh, come back to us when we come back to it. Yeah, and then I promise you I have some uh, some uh, different versions of it and uh, we're going to talk about it uh, just, just a bit more. Um, so back to the, the, to the single, uh, we, um, I think uh, we agreed last time that Heart Shaped Box uh, just might be the very best uh, Nirvana song they ever made. Yeah. Um, do you know how the single was received back in the day? Uh, I think it was received well. I can I can very much remember the uh, the music video being on heavy rotation. Um, obviously, also because it was a great music video. <laughs> um, yeah. But even if the videos is amazing, if the song uh, wasn't a hit, they wouldn't play it. So I know it's it was pretty successful. I can't really remember the the reactions during that time. I think most people just went with it. I mean the the, the eventual um, reviews for In Utero were really positive as well. So I think that in general people went with it. Although I think that this single and also the very artsy video, uh, which went uh, steps beyond uh, what they did for previous singles, I think that did alienate some of their more rowdy fans because it all looked very highbrow and it sounded very highbrow. Yeah, it's not an easy one to take in, both the song and the video. I mean, lyrics with... with cancer in there and all the images uh, in the video with with um, with a jesus figure and the uh, fetuses growing off a tree and, and stuff like that it must have alienated some people but then again um there were still rumors flying around that the album was unreleasable <laughs> and yep. was just one big pile of noise that nobody would appreciate and then they came out with this with this song so i think a lot of people were Simply relieved that it was good. <laughs> yep. And uh, yeah, it, it, it was really, really good. And it kind of um, got them back in the game. And obviously during that same time, um, the uh, the interview book, uh, Come As You Are, I think we talked right. about it before, um, that was released during the same time. So that helped as well. Um, and some small appearances, uh, and obviously uh, the, the appearances that they did after this, which we're going to talk about. Um, I think it was all sort of nicely timed to to really project Nirvana back into the spotlights, which was needed yeah. because during their period of, of let's say, absence, uh, the, the grunge crown had been... Um, put firmly on the head of uh, Eddie Vedder <laughs> of uh, Pearl Jam. Um, so uh, I think it was uh, definitely needed for Nirvana to to have all of those different outlets and really show like, okay, we're back. Not necessarily maybe what the band wanted to do, but definitely what the uh, uh, 
uh, record company uh, <laughs> needed to do because they needed to show that the original grunge guys were uh, back in the game. Yeah, and just to be clear, um, they were perceived as the original grunge guys. I mean, <laughs> we're not saying that they're uh, the original grunge guys who started it uh, and um, they knew very well that they weren't, but they were the ones who, who brought it to the to the big um, audience. Yeah, like I said, this is, uh, the main this stage. is more the, uh, the, the record company speaking than the band themselves, obviously. And like you said, uh, I think the release of their uh, official uh, biography, uh, Come As You Are, by Michael Ezrat, played a big part in it as well because it gave them the chance to um, shape their own story. And there are quite some um, factual errors in that <laughs> book. And now they had a chance to tell their own story and they did. Yep. So I think it had a big impact as well. And in the book, Kurt is downplaying his drug abuse a bit. Yep. I mean, he said, yeah, I did heroin for just a couple of months and that was it, which well wasn't true. But I think it was uh, reassuring for a lot of people who, uh, who really want to believe that story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it was um, a way for him as well to even if he still was doing drugs, to at least um, leave that image behind because that was sort of the the weird combination that he had, that that he, although he was a drug abuser, he didn't want that to be the story about him or Nirvana or the music. So that was something that really annoyed him, not just in the press, but also sometimes with fans who sort of associated him with drugs so to try and and downplay that, I think uh, uh, was was a definitely a good idea because you know that the press will not downplay that basically because no. it's nice to talk about and especially I mean, it's there, sensational there was, stories. So. Yeah, and there were a lot of like back in the days. I'm I'm not even just talking about the the, the more serious music press, but like the enormous amount of of silly teenage magazines that were there all over the world um, that were mainly focused on music. I mean, it's hard to to realize now how many of them were there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they only they only did like uh, headlines from other interviews or rumors or whatever. So they would always go for for the wacky stuff and the, and the shocking stuff. And uh, yeah, I can imagine that he he wasn't happy about that even if it was yeah. his reality. Now, um, after that, um, Kurt and Courtney did their only um, performance as a, as a duo. Yeah. Because they appeared on the Rock Against Rape um, uh, fundraiser event. I'm not, I don't really know much about it, I must admit. But uh, I think uh, the title Rock Against Rape probably says, uh, says enough. Yep. It was in uh, in Hollywood. They uh, came on stage. I think uh, Courtney announced um, Kurt as uh, my husband, Yoko. <laughs> uh, they uh, played two songs, Spin a Royal Tea and uh, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Um, which of the two would you like to uh, have a listen to? Um, I would very much like to listen to Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Okay, here we go. In the pines, in the pines, where the sun won't ever shine, I'll shiver the whole night through. My girl, my girl, don't lie. 
Did she just say, thanks a lot, we're Sunny and Cher? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, she could be funny. Um, still, <laughs> I'm not sure if, um, yeah, they would be that successful uh, with just the two of them. <laughs> no, I because think Because especially this... Pen Royalty more or less sounded like a shouting match <laughs> between the two of them. Yeah, this is uh, definitely a scream fest. Um but, but this time, nobody called the police. So that's a good thing. <laughs> no, that's, that's totally true. Maybe that what was happening. Maybe they just mm. were rehearsing this song and, and somebody I, called I'm not the sure police. if they rehearsed uh, for this performance. <laughs> no, that's true. I've always found it interesting that they were influencing each other's music. Definitely, they both mm. have talked about that, how they try to stimulate the other person in what they were doing and, and listen to each other's songs and, and, and obviously also write lyrics that, that were inspired by each other. Um, but they didn't do a lot together. Um, and even though this is definitely unrehearsed and, and shouty, I still think that there's like there's a quality to, to both of their voices and also their, their, their intensity that could work very well together. It would have been really interesting to hear what would have happened if they did actually start doing songs together. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear some more of um, Kurt and Courtney uh, together? Uh, yeah. Well, this is a song called Stinking of You. I'm stinking of you ever hear this uh, before no where did you get this one uh it's from a home video ah right which you can yeah hear pretty clearly yeah. they're just you know fooling around i think it was in the hit that heart documentary mm -hmm. about the former drummer of hole yep. courtney's band and then you know people put it on the internet said oh it's an unknown song from kurt <laughs> and well no it's it's not really that but it's it's you can you can hear that they sometimes jam together. Yeah. It also led to some speculation that Kurt wrote music for um, Courtney, mm -hmm. which I don't think really is the case. Um, his manager later uh, denied it as well because he said, well, he was really uh, keen to holding on to his songs yeah. if he had a good one. He wanted to keep it for his own band. But they did cooperate. Yeah. Have you ever heard the um, version of um, Asking For It by Hole uh, on which you can hear uh, Kurt sing uh, yeah. backing vocals? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's uh, check that one out uh, as well. Yeah. And if you live to this, I swear that I would die for you. And if you live to this, I swear that I would die for you. 
When this recording surfaced, I think it was really, really fueled the rumors of oh, Kurt wrote um, Hall's new uh, album and and stuff like that. But uh, actually, people who were there said um, Kurt didn't really know the song, so nope. he just, you know, exactly. improvised a bit, which <laughs> proves that it weren't his songs. Apparently, I think Courtney was the one who was like, "Oh, I'd I'd love for you to." sing on the album so just sing along even if you don't know it and and he wasn't even that keen i think that there was more that he sang that never made any cuts um <laughs> we've talked before about the whole courtney love issues especially back in the day where it was hard for her to um, maintain her own status as a musician uh, as soon as she was with kurt even though she'd had a career before that. Um, and I think you can clearly hear that she writes songs that are different and her whole band do that. So it's also a bit sad to like attribute everything all of a sudden to Kurt as if she needed that or wanted that. Well, he probably did inspire her yeah, or sure. help her out. And that's, that's fair. I mean... Um... Most people think that Courtney probably um, influenced Kurt uh, on writing lyrics and maybe um, the other way around uh, was more uh, musically. Yep. Courtney did come up with a lot more um, melodic pop songs. Definitely. The whole first album is really raw and, and, and rough. And uh, then the second album was really accessible and yeah, full of like sweet melodies. So maybe she, she took a... A leaf out of Kurt's book, but uh, yeah, but, that doesn't mean yeah. that she stole it from him. Um, let's get back on track with Nirvana because, well, they had a, a new single out and they had an upcoming uh, uh, album and a tour to uh, to promote. And uh, what better stage to do that than uh, on the stage of uh, SNL, Saturday Night Live. And that was their uh, second appearance there. And let's have a listen to that one. They uh, played um, Rape Me in Heart Shape Box and we're going to listen to uh, the last one. This time around, uh, it wasn't uh, John Duncan who was uh, with them on stage as a second uh, guitar player. It was Mr. Pat Smear. Yes. When we were preparing for this episode, uh, I kind of <laughs> pushed you into uh, doing some uh, research on uh, on Pat Smear because I don't know that much about him. No, and I, I mentioned that I thought that he was sort of underrepresented in general in the whole Nirvana story which I found interesting. So, yeah. So w why did you feel that way? Well, what I find interesting is that um, <laughs> even in, in our episodes, like there's 
we've had so many discussions about our new new drummers and and uh, every new person who came into the band, and that was always a problem. Um, and now all of a sudden there is this extra guy who is pretty important for the sound, but is not a new member of the band. He's just the extra guy. And although I think most people know his name, I myself was also wondering like, yeah, sure, Pat Smear. And, and later on he went to the Foo Fighters and that, but who is he actually? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering the same thing. Yeah. So um, well, I hope you can uh, educate me. Yeah, definitely. I could, I could talk about him for an hour, but let's not do that. Um, I'll just uh, I'll just do some fun facts. Obviously, um, he's not called Pat Smear. It's uh, it's it's a joke on Pap Smear, which is uh, what uh, uh, like a, a, a physical examination that women get to uh, see if they have uh, cervical cancer. So yeah, <laughs> look that up at home. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that was a, a big appeal for Kurt, which is uh, fascination for um, <laughs> exactly. medical uh, stuff. And yeah, yeah, I think that that definitely must have helped. Um, but he's uh, he's actually called George Rothenberg. He is quite a bit older than the rest of the band, like eight to ten years older than the rest of Nirvana. Which I found interesting because I think that is something that also helped when he came into the band. He had, uh, he was older, he had more experience. Um, so it was, I think, slightly easier to just add him to the band and just let, have him play because he sort of, yeah, he'd, he'd been there, done that, basically. Um, he started in a, uh, a punk rock band called Germs, uh, which was... Uh, uh, on the scene for only a couple of years, but had a big underground following. Um, the uh, singer of that band uh, overdosed and died, and then the band broke up. So, uh, yeah, basically, Pat had to go through that again later on, which is a yeah, shame. You, re you requested a, a song of the Germs, yep. uh, Lexicon Devil. Anything in particular you want to point out to our listeners? You can hear Pat's guitar playing on this quite well and I think you can also hear why his sound fits Nirvana I think so let's have a listen Does that make sense to you? Uh, it kind of does, uh, but to be quite honest, to me it sounds a bit like a generic punk song that doesn't really stand out. No, no, I, I agree. It's uh, well, I think one of the <laughs> one of the whole things of punk was that it was quite generic, to be honest. Um, but <laughs> I think in this case, uh, what does stand out is that it has um, quite a clear sound, um, especially in the guitars. Um, Often punk is is more fuzzy, also in the guitar sounds, uh, where it's not like it. Every every note just goes seamlessly into the other, and here you can actually hear what he's playing. I mean, it, <laughs> I don't play guitar, so I don't have the right words for it, but I'm I'm sure people will understand what I mean. Um, 
And I think that that's, that's something that not every uh, punk guitar player had. Um, so yeah. I, can, I can sort of feel the similarities. Yeah, and basically he, he went out of the music industry for a long time after Germs, uh, did some session work, but also pursued a career in acting. Um, <laughs> one of the, the most fun things, I think, and, and do look this up, we'll post it on Facebook as well, is that he actually was an extra in the video for Princess Raspberry Beret. <laughs> which is which is bonkers uh, when you look at it. Um, he's a, he's a guy with uh, he has really long hair and uh, like dreadlocks, and you see him sitting in front of Lisa Coleman's piano and just singing along and mm. clapping because it's a really happy song and a happy video. And yeah, I've seen that video many times as a Prince fan, and I was like, oh wow, I never realized that with him. Um, but he um, he also did some more serious acting and um, on the set of one of those um, uh, films he did, he met Courtney Love and they kept in touch basically um, and Courtney was the one who recommended him to um, Kurt. Um, yeah, are, are you sure about that? Because I've heard some different stories about it. I know that they were in the same movie. Yeah. But are we sure that Courtney made the recommendation or did people just, you know, fill in the blanks and said, oh, there's a connection? No, no, no. So he, uh, he, uh, Pat Smear told that in an interview um, uh, um, himself that um, Courtney had told him that Kurt would be calling him. And then Kurt did call him a couple of days later. Uh, but at first he thought somebody was pranking him, even though Courtney had... <laughs> warned him but it turned out to be uh, the, the real Kurt Cobain and uh, what I find slightly unclear is that the way he he tells it he was sort of like hired on the spot like we need a guitar player and and Courtney said you were cool and and obviously um, Kurt knew germs so it wasn't totally out of blue I guess I mean he, he didn't know their sound but apparently he called him and, and he came into rehearsal and that was it. Yeah, I, yeah. I can't see um, Nirvana at that point doing like auditions or anything like that. No, no. I but mean, but this is <laughs> compared to uh, compared to other, um, uh, um, well, the, the drummers and stuff like that. I think that it was a combination of them needing somebody extra Um not wanting to bother with auditions and certainly not wanting to have somebody join the band permanently. So it was just a gig for for the tour. Um, and like I said, I, I really suspect that the fact that, that he was um, a bit older and, and less impressive really helped him. And um, he said himself in interviews as well that he was really relaxed um, he liked cracking some jokes every now and then, but he was sort of a a steady person in the background that really helped the band because he was there just basically serving serving Nirvana and being yeah. relaxed about it. So I think that he probably had a a positive influence on the tour as well, uh, just by being a person like that. Yeah, when I see uh, Nirvana perform with uh, with uh, Pat uh, in the band, um, it always strikes me that he has such a like a he's a cool guy in a very positive way. He just looks so energetic and just having fun, which yeah. wasn't always uh, the case with uh, uh, Nirvana because it, 
they could come off as pretty negative or not enjoying themselves or being frustrated or whatever. And he always seems to be just really happy that he's yeah. uh, on on stage playing these songs to a big crowd and, you know, everything's cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's like, he seems to be such a nice, cool guy to have around. So I can, can imagine. Yeah. Did you know um, Ever True writes in his book that um, he first was approached by the Red Hot Chili Peppers yeah. to join uh, their band? But then he said, uh, no thanks. Uh, the only band uh, I would consider joining is Nirvana. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. By the way, um, I think um, the story, as you tell it, makes a lot more sense than another story that's flying around uh, is that when somebody suggested that they should call a pet smear, that uh, the other guys of Nirvana thought that he was dead. Huh? I've heard I've heard that somewhere. Wow, that's really weird because he worked with Courtney and yeah. So they had a yeah. But on the other hand, he was um, he was out of the active music scene at that moment and had been if they had for just a watched that Prince video. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe maybe they 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 mixed him up with the singer of of their band. Yeah. No, that, that's that's possible, yeah. Um, but anyway, they uh, added um, uh, Pat Smear uh, for their live uh, lineup for their upcoming uh, tour yep. um, that would kick off uh, on October 18th. Uh, in, meanwhile, the Euro album was released, and so they had to, uh, to promote that. Um, or at least, um, I'm not sure if they had to promote it, um, there are some sources saying that Kurt really didn't want to go on tour, oh. um, but they did, and they had a quite extensive tour as well. Um, so I'm I'm not sure what what really happened there. If he was pressured into it, or maybe he wanted to do it on one hand, but there was also a side of him that didn't want to do it. Or I'm I'm just not not sure. No, I think there's a lot of different stories about this. I mean, obviously, touring hadn't always turned out well for Kurt, especially in the in the, the earlier days. Um, he now had a family at home. Um, I can imagine that that had an influence as well. For any musician, touring is is uh, tough um, under any circumstance. There are some stories I've read about him not wanting to do that and then being convinced because of the money, which is, I think, I mean, it's a valid uh, choice, um, obviously, uh, because there is a lot of money involved when you tour. But on the other hand, I don't think that could have been the only reason. Um, I, I assume that even though touring was hard, um, he did enjoy playing live. And the last couple of, of small gigs they did were were nice. Um, so perhaps his his personal feelings about that had changed a bit for the better. I kind of hope so. But then again, a lot of people uh, involved say that the whole atmosphere was a bit weird and yeah. th things were really different. Uh, well, first of all, a Nirvana show was different now because they had a second uh, guitar player. They had like an acoustic set in between with, uh, with the cello and with some more, uh, yeah, uh, let's say unplugged songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, they had those uh, big dolls on stage. Uh, so, so there was that. They had like um, a permanent set list. And they were going on a stadium tour, at least in, in the US. Um, 
And that's what you do for a stadium tour. Like any band that goes from middle venues to large stadiums need to do that kind of thing. It sort of goes with the territory. On the other hand, I think that you don't have to do it. If like Nirvana was had their own ideas often, uh, Kurt has it, had his own ideas. He was very much into uh, designing stuff. So I can also imagine that being on a stage and, and bringing your uh, anatomy dolls with you and like large, large trees of plastic and stuff like that must have been fun as well for him, at least to design it because he wanted to design the videos as well. So, yeah. Yeah, and in his uh, uh, journals that were later published, uh, he also sketched out some ideas for that, like a, 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 a big wheel, which like a hypnotic wheel, something like that. <laughs> cool. Um, I think he also had an idea to put on like big signs uh, that you um, have to look at and read out uh, when you get uh, an eye test. All right. Yeah. Nice. So <laughs> when I yeah, but uh, they never uh, did uh, use that that idea. Um, yeah. I'm I'm just not quite sure if that was really the way they wanted to go because they didn't really seem to be happy with it. No. Um, Chris uh, said about it, um, it used to be an adventure. Now it's a, it's a circus. Mm -hmm. So he had well, mixed feelings about it, um, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also backstage, I think things were different. Um, they were um, uh, driving around in two separate vans, one with Dave and Chris and one with Kurt and Pat, yeah. who connected really well together. But still, I mean, if you are um, used to having um, the whole band packed into a, a small crappy van and have that sense of, um, yeah, being into it together yeah. and bonding together, and then all of a sudden, this is what's happening, not a lot of partying going on. No. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I think they themselves felt that they lost something there. Yeah, yeah, and I, I can definitely imagine that happening. And, and like I said, it sort of comes with the territory, but you can change it. You just have to, like, <laughs> have to realize that and then make those changes. And I don't think they were in a position to do that. Um, and I think that maybe they also, and and they, I, I, I think... I mean, Kurt um, made a mistake in in thinking like if we do bigger venues, uh, we can do less dates because that's something I I read somewhere as well. Like the the more people you reach on one day, um, that makes like instead of having to play the same city three times, you can play it once. Um, and I can imagine him having a feeling of okay, let's do that because that will make it easier. Um, but yeah, then you go into the direction of having less contact with your audience and your bandmates, which is uh, yeah. the other side of the middle. Yeah, I, I, I think it comes down to that they should have done the tour more on their own terms yeah. and really talk about, okay, guys, what do we want to do? Yeah. Um, I, I always have to think about uh, something Neil Young said that um, he never met Kurt, but he often thought about wanting to chat with him and mm -hmm. tell him that he didn't have to do anything. Yeah, cool. <laughs> and later yeah. he did um, serve as a so, sort of a mentor for Pearl Jam. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think uh, he told them exactly that because that's what Neil Young himself did. I mean, yeah. if you wanted to follow up a really successful album with a, an accessible, noisy garage uh, uh, album, he did. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I wish he could have um, convinced Kurt of that. And I don't think the outcome outcome would have been anything different. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It, uh, it seems like such a... Such a waste and uh, such a shame. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, they did sound really good on this tour. Yeah, definitely. There's also some people who say that um, Kurt was a bit more optimistic and looking uh, after himself a bit more. But I think that just, you know, would depend on what day they would encounter him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the same with the uh, whole... Uh what was the, the 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 flying story in the, in Rio or was it that mm. we had talked about before like yeah. some people saying that that he was sad and other people were like oh yeah no he's really happy i mean yeah that goes with yeah. the whole territory of of drug abuse and also with being on tour i guess so uh, yeah yeah and and also it's it's uh, 25 years later yeah. so it's really hard to distinguish the facts from the um, stories and some people use this use those stories to create their own i mean the the people who um, want to convince the world that kurt did not take his own life but was murdered they try to highlight um people saying no he was doing a lot better and just to um to use it like as quote-unquote evidence that mm-hmm. he did not uh, commit suicide so sometimes you know Stories uh, get their own lives for yeah. reasons like that. I, I always uh, find it interesting that that you hear people say like, "Oh yeah, he was uh, he was he was looking really bad, and he was like a walking corpse and and stuff like that." And then you look at the footage of of shows, and to be honest, when I look at at that period, I usually see a a fairly healthy <laughs> Kurt um, in insofar as that you can't obviously know how healthy somebody is and obviously he wasn't healthy but um, I've always found that that strange that the way that people describing as like a walking corpse is not what I see when I see the shows um, yeah but then again uh, I mean when it was looking really bad probably nobody uh, took photographs of him or made videos of him there are some images of him where he looks really really awful Mm -hmm. but i think at this point he was still doing relatively okay i think they really it really went downhill when they uh uh, went to europe but that's uh that's a topic for later episode one thing they did do on their own terms is uh decide um which bands they would uh tour with yeah, because uh, well, they had been asked for some very by some very big bands uh, to join forces. Mm-hmm. Um, that started with Metallica and Guns N' Roses, but I think also U2 approached them and and ah. and stuff like that. But they always said no to offers like that. Yeah. Uh, instead, they would rather bring bands on the road um, that they liked. So uh, on this tour, they had uh, Mud Honey, uh, the Meat Puppets, the Breeders, the Melvins, the Butthole yeah. Surfers. Um, they all lizard. served uh, at Jesus Lizard um, at at one point as a, as their uh, uh, support act. So that must have been something that Kurt really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, so that was uh, that at least that must have been an, uh, a positive uh, thing for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and uh, and that was in line with what Nirvana had always been doing, supporting other bands that they liked and wearing the T-shirts and bringing them along and trying to introduce them to uh, a bigger audience. Yeah, and that uh, well, that definitely worked for uh, the Meat Puppets. Yeah, um, because they um, brought them uh, to their um, MTV Unplugged session. So our next two podcasts will be about um, the Unplugged uh, session. Yeah, but we're just gonna uh, skip over that uh, for now. Oh, and by the way, it it wasn't like nothing spontaneous could happen anymore. Uh, I want to focus on their uh, Halloween gig. Nice. They did um, where they were all wearing costumes. Um, <laughs> Kurt was uh, Barney the dinosaur, so he was hardly recognizable for uh, yeah. <laughs> because he was in like this big dinosaur uh, costume. I think he later changed to something like a, a male fairy or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> he must have gotten really, really hot in that. Um, Pat was uh, hilar- really hilariously addressed as a Slash, the guitar player from Guns N' Roses. Dave was dressed up as a mummy and Chris was uh, like a reversed white face character. And I yeah. think there's a whole story behind that, but pff, <laughs> I don't really feel like going into that. But he had written a PC on his forehead, yeah. uh, politically correct. So um, there was that. Um, and also um, something weird happened. Um, does the phrase the shoe incident ring any bells to you? Yeah, but I don't know exactly anymore. So you will have to tell me. Well, uh, at one point during uh, the show, uh, a shoe was uh, thrown uh, at Kurt and he uh, decided uh, to pee in it and then he wanted to throw it back. Uh, But then he uh, found out that actually the guy whose shoe it was didn't throw it because he had just lost the shoe uh, in in the... in the pit or something like that, and somebody <laughs> else threw it at stage. Um, I don't think we have any uh, images of it, but we do have the audio. So uh, yeah. let's listen to that. Would anyone like to claim this shoe? Oh, that's right. Let me see your other shoe to prove that you're the owner, and then you can have it back. You'll take it? No, this is an amputee convention, Kurt. Let me see your other foot to see if it's the same shoe. Beat him, beat him. Hit him, Kurt, hit him. Amputee porno. Maybe that's it for the 90s. Kurt's giving him a brotherly lecture to this kid about throwing things on stage. Now listen, I know you're here to have a good time, but come on, man, give me a break. Did you lecture him, Kurt? Uh, Apparently, he wasn't the one who threw it. He lost it, and then some other asshole threw it. So, now I have to buy him a new pair of shoes. Yeah, so there's that. Um, It's it's not very uh, important, but it does Proof that there was still room for weird stuff yeah, to happen. <laughs> there was still some rebellious punk rock spirit there. Yeah, and 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 even though they might have been indifferent tour buses, I think that that one of the things that 
mostly worked for Nirvana is as soon as they were on stage, there was this kind of thing happening between them that that made it work. Um, yeah, and, and gave them the ability to to joke around every now and then as well. That's nice. Yeah. I think if people really want to know what that tour looked like and uh, how they sounded, uh, they should definitely check out uh, the Live and Loud performance, yep. which was recorded for MTV. Uh, they wanted to um, broadcast uh, their show on, uh, I think, New Year's Eve. Yep. Yeah, it was a, um, a an MTV special. They did a lot of... MTV did a lot of big, weird things in that, in that period, <laughs> like... <laughs> Um, like big production sets and combining all kinds of of stars, like the the more the better. So this live and loud thing, even though Nirvana were the headliners, um, it it also contained like um, because it was a, a New Year's Eve celebration. Um, it contained like comedy skits by the Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> and. Jenna Jackson wishing everybody a happy new year and stuff like that. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and just which, to be which, clear, uh, yeah. And, and just to be clear, um, uh, it was pre-recorded. Yeah. So they just organized uh, a, a show and then they could, you know, uh, uh, yeah. broadcast a Nirvana uh, part of the show uh, on New Year's Eve. Yeah. Jenna um, Jackson wasn't there. <laughs> no, she wasn't there. They weren't on stage together. Um, <laughs> They were supposed to share the, the headlining spot with uh, Pearl Jam. Yeah. But they uh, they uh, canceled uh, on the day of the show, I think. Yeah, that was, I, I've always found that a weird story. Um, I don't know, maybe you know more details, but the story is that indeed they canceled on the day of the show because Eddie Vedder had the flu, apparently, um, <laughs> which... Doesn't sound too serious. I mean, no, come on. Of... I mean, Kurt could could OD and then exactly, play a great show <laughs> and then yeah, Eddie Vedder. Can... Well, maybe that's why uh, Pearl Jam is still around and uh, Nirvana <laughs> is not. But uh... yeah, because Eddie Vedder just just takes the day off when he feels ill, so that's why he's still healthy and 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 playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's, maybe, but um, that's yeah. wise. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Fact is that uh, Pearl Jam uh, canceled uh, last minute. We don't really know for sure why, but um, MTV was pissed because they were like, "Okay, course. we have Nirvana and Pearl Jam in the same Who show." Who were still, yeah. you know, like rivals. Exactly. But uh, it, it didn't really happen. Um, uh, it was a great thing for uh, Cypress Hill. Yep. Because they moved up a spot, and I think, uh, yeah, that would have been an. A uh, very interesting combination. Yep. Uh, first have uh, Cypress Hill on, and then uh, then Nirvana. And the Breeders uh, like were there as well. Don't forget them. They were awesome. So, um, yeah, it, and it was documented really well. Um, we have the, the, the footage. And a couple of years ago, it came out as like a, a standalone album. So you can just go uh, on Spotify and, uh, and uh, check it out. Yeah, I, I really like this show. Maybe it wasn't as adventurous and spontaneous anymore. And I can totally understand why some people felt that Nirvana kind of changed and not for the better. But then again, it just, it's really good. Yeah. So <laughs> there's there's that. Is there any particular song from the Live and, Live and Loud uh, show that you would like to request? Mm, I, I think I've requested a lot 
this episode and you often ask me like what do you want to hear so i think this is the moment where every, I every time you, i don't really know myself i just uh, <laughs> i just <laughs> throw you a curveball and then you have to sh- blurt out something and then i know which uh, which button i should push push so well uh, <laughs> mm. I, I, I was thinking maybe we should play rape me because uh kurt finally got to play rape me on mtv yeah which went to do <laughs> a lot longer or serve the servants because he changed the lyrics from uh, i tried hard to have a father but instead i have a dad uh, but he uh, changed them into i tried hard to have a sister but instead i have a dad which yep. doesn't make any sense no nope. I, I think he liked to mess up his lyrics when he was doing his shows for <laughs> yeah. mtv um on their famous uh, vma uh, performance he was singing in lithium instead of uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm a turd. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm a turd. So we like to goof around with that. Let's do serve the servants. Yeah. But just because last time we said that it's like an underappreciated Nirvana song. Yeah, so we're uh, gonna check that one out. sounds really good it's a really good show um of course uh, they didn't uh, play a uh, smells like teen spirit i think <laughs> like just just a little f you to mtv still <laughs> even though they played two mtv sessions in about two months time so i suppose they uh they didn't uh, have that much of a grudge uh, against them anymore no, and, and Kurt even i think he did an exclusive interview with kurt loader from mtv but apparently they got drunk all of them <laughs> and the interview never aired i think he, he he made his peace with them even though the 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 unplugged um session didn't really go as planned but yeah that's for the next episode yeah that's a great uh, great teaser um but before we can end this episode and uh, move on to the next one uh we have some uh listeners uh, writing in that I'd like to d- discuss. Um, first of all, there was Matt, who wrote, uh, Hi guys, an insightful episode uh, on Nirvana's In Euro album. I love playing Francis Fa- Farmer will have a revenge on Seattle. Pretty sure it's the longest song title by Nirvana. Uh, I think so too. And also, I've read somewhere that by giving the song such a long title, he went into uh, like the new... Uh, trendy thing to do uh, which was using really short titles yeah. like breed or yep. sliver and nirvana kind of di- uh, like doing that but then everybody started doing it so maybe that's why <laughs> kurt uh, used a really long title i'm not i'm not sure it could be oh. um anyway uh, matt writes uh, uh, i love jamming to the instrumental if you uh, have ever thought of learning guitar this song will hook you once you get it so much fun well i have the same experience um, and he also says, uh, I like Rape Me. And it's really cool that he uh, uh, talks about that because uh, 
well, we both uh, admitted that it's not our favorite song. Matt says, uh, it's blunt and has that Nirvana sloppiness between chords. I love the vocals too, especially the shadowed screaming of Rape Me at the End. Uh, I turn it up every time it comes on. Without any research, I have a couple of thoughts on Rape Me. One, it was written and produced in the style of Smells Like Teen Spirit to emphasize how uh, that song really took the band to the mainstream and how that turned into the media invading their personal lives. I agree with you that it's quite pretty compared to the actual act. Uh, uh, it's quite petty. I agree with you that it's quite petty uh, compared to the actual act of rape and violence. Uh, in saying that, I have never walked in shoes where my life is monitored by invasive strangers and unwanted intrusion. Sounds very much like abuse. Two, I have a vague memory of an interview uh, with Kurt, where the song also has a background storyline of a rapist being convicted of rape. And then when in uh, jail, the uh, rapist, rapist is raped. I'm sorry, this is uh, like a, a tongue breaker for me. Um or the rapey turning the tables and becoming the rapist. Anyway, the rapist gets raped. Whew, that was really hard to get out of my mouth. Uh, uh, yeah, I've heard that story as well, by the way. Yeah, and Matt's uh, third point is, I believe the song is focused towards violence against women. Yeah, that's uh, that's for sure. So that was uh, that was Matt. Uh, so thank you for, uh, for writing in there. Yeah, great. I love hearing uh, hearing how uh, songs uh, can can convey all of those different meanings uh, in audiences, and and like we discussed before, I think that's also something that that Kurt wanted, um, and some emphasize one thing and others the other. So it's great to hear from uh, from you, uh, Matt, and uh, and your ideas on uh, on the song. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. And we also got a message on our Facebook page from uh, Dylan uh, Vatour. Uh, that was quite a time ago. He wrote in after uh, we discussed uh, the Incesticide compilation album. I made kind of a fool of myself by announcing a version of Hairspray Queen and I couldn't find the track I was talking about. But luckily Dylan found it. Uh, so he said, yeah, he pointed out uh, the right version um of that song uh he also said big fan by the way been listening since the beginning so that's also nice to hear uh but it's also <laughs> even though you messed up <laughs> even though i messed up so uh, thanks uh, dylan for uh, yeah. for uh, helping me out here and even though it's been months since we recorded that episode i would still like to say well i was right that at least that version exists <laughs> It was recorded in uh, 1987 in the uh, KAOS FM radio studios. And to close off uh, this episode, we're going to have uh, a quick listen to it. Oh, and for people who haven't heard that episode or have long forgotten about it, um, the thing I wanted to point out is that Kurt is playing the intro and not Chris on his bass. So there you have it.
I totally forgot what the point was I was trying to make by uh, <laughs> highlighting this uh, <laughs> this version, but uh, well, it exists, and that's uh, that's enough for me for now. If you're listening to this and you know what point Sito was trying to make, <laughs> please send us a message. Please. Yeah, yeah. It almost sounds like <laughs> we want other people to make the podcast. <laughs> I mean, we could just say, well, uh, if you have anything uh, to say about Nirvana, just record it and uh, send it to us. And then we'll just kind of put it out as a podcast. <laughs> No, no, let's, let's just, I, I enjoy doing this. So yeah. Yeah. yeah so am I, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, I suggest we keep on doing the, the talking and the recording, but we do really appreciate, um, uh, the input from, uh, from our listeners. So if there's anything you would like to, uh, let us know, just send us an email. You can send that to surewoodpodcast at gmail.com. That's surewoodpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can look us up on Facebook, uh, on facebook.com slash nirvanapodcast. Also, I think I'm the only guy using the hashtag nirvanapodcast on Twitter. So that might <laughs> lead you to me as well. I, I, I use it as well. So okay. So there's, there's, two, yeah, there's two people in the whole world who use that uh, <laughs> hashtag. So uh, it, we, we're not that hard to find. That's it for this time. Next time we will talk about um, the Unplugged uh, album, Side A. And I think we're also going to talk a bit uh, about the things that were on the Unplugged show, but didn't make it to the uh, album as it was released. So uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. So uh, I hope everybody listening now will uh, tune in again. Also, if you appreciate what we're doing here, uh, please um, give us some nice reviews or uh, send the show to your uh, friends who might be interested or share it on your social media or uh, uh, basically do whatever you can and want to do to support us. If you see somebody walking around in a Nirvana t-shirt, just walk up to them and tell them about our podcast. Yes, that's the best way to promote a podcast, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Um, Thank you, everybody. And uh, until next time, bye. (laughs) Bye.